Welcome to the final episode of Nutting Memorial Library's presentation of Joseph Conrad's Lord Jim. Thank you for joining us through these 14 installments, which were originally published 120 years ago. This final segment includes chapters 41 through 45, and you can follow along in the text by clicking the link in the show notes. Today, Lauren joins us not for an article recommendation, but a conversation about this podcast. It's been a real pleasure to read this story to you over the last 14 weeks, and I'm so grateful that you've joined me for this adventure. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please consider leaving a review to help other listeners find us. While you're at it, join our library on Facebook to share your favorite parts of the story and what you think of Jim and Marlo. We hope you enjoy this 14th and final installment of Lord Jim. Chapter 41 To the very last moment, till the full day came upon them with a spring, the fires on the west bank blazed bright and clear, and then Brown saw in a knot of colored figures motionless between the advanced houses a man in European clothes, in a helmet, all white. "'That's him! Look! Look!' Cornelius said excitedly. All Brown's men had sprung up and crowded at his back with lusterless eyes. The group of vivid colors and dark faces with the white figure in their midst were observing the knoll. Brown could see naked arms being raised to shade the eyes and other brown arms pointing. What should he do? He looked around, and the forest that faced him on all sides walled the cockpit of an unequal contest. He looked once more at his men. A contempt, a weariness, the desire of life, the wish to try for one more chance, for some other grave, struggled in his breast. From the outline the figure presented, it seemed to him that the white man there, backed up by all the power of the land, was examining his position through binoculars. Brown jumped up on the log, throwing his arms up, the palms outwards. The colored group closed round the white man and fell back twice before he got clear of them, walking slowly alone. Brown remained standing on the log till Jim, appearing and disappearing between the patches of thorny scrub, had nearly reached the creek. Then Brown jumped off and went down to meet him on his side. They met, I should think, not very far from the place, perhaps on the very spot where Jim took the second desperate leap of his life, the leap that landed him into the life of Patizan, into the trust, the love, the confidence of the people. They faced each other across the creek, and with steady eyes tried to understand each other before they opened their lips. Their antagonism must have been expressed in their glances. I know that Brown hated Jim at first sight. Whatever hopes he might have had vanished at once. This was not the man he had expected to see. He hated him for this, and in a checked flannel shirt with sleeves cut off at the elbows, gray-bearded, with a sunken, sun-blackened face, he cursed in his heart the other's youth and assurance, his clear eyes and his untroubled bearing. That fellow had got in a long way before him. He did not look like a man who would be willing to give anything for assistance. He had all the advantages on his side. Possession, security, power. He was on the side of an overwhelming force. He was not hungry and desperate, and he did not seem in the least afraid. And there was something in the very neatness of Jim's clothes, from the white helmet to the canvas leggings and the pipe-clayed shoes, which in brown, somber, irritated eyes seemed to belong to things he had in the very shaping of his life condemned and flouted. "'Who are you?' asked Jim at last, speaking in his usual voice. "'My name's Brown,' 
answered the other loudly. Captain Brown, what's yours? And Jim, after a little pause, went on quietly, as if he had not heard. What made you come here? You want to know, said Brown bitterly. It's easy to tell. Hunger, and what made you? The fellow started at this, said Brown, relating to me the opening of the strange conversation between those two men, separated only by the muddy bed of a creek, but standing on the opposite poles of that conception of life which includes all mankind. The fellow started at this and got very red in the face, too big to be questioned, I suppose. I told him that if he looked upon me as a dead man with whom you may take liberties, he himself was not a whit better off, really. I had a fellow up there who had a bead drawn on him all the time, and only waited for a sign from me. There is nothing to be shocked at in this. He had come down of his own free will. Let us agree, said I, that we are both dead men, and let us talk on that basis, as equals. We are all equal before death, I said. I admitted I was there like a rat in a trap, but we had been driven to it, and even a trapped rat can give a bite. He caught me up in a moment. Not if you don't go near the trap till the rat is dead. I told him that sort of game was good enough for these native friends of his, but I would have thought him too white to serve even a rat so. Yes, I had wanted to talk with him, not to beg for my life, though. My fellows were, well, what they were, men like himself, anyhow. All he wanted from him was to come on in the devil's name and have it out. God damn it, I said, while he stood there as still as a wooden post. You don't want to come out here every day with your glasses to count how many of us are left on our feet. Come, either bring your infernal crowd along, or let us go out and starve in the open sea. By God, you have been white once for all your tall talk of this being your own people and you being one with them. Are you? And what the devil do you get for it? Is it what you found here is so damned precious? Hey, you don't want us to come down here, perhaps, do you? You are two hundred to one. You don't want us to come down into the open. Ah, I promise you we shall give you some sport before you've done. You talk about me making a cowardly set upon unoffending people. What's that to me that they are unoffending? When I am starving for next to no offense. But I am not a coward. Don't you be one. Bring them along, or, by all the fiends, we shall yet manage to send half your unoffending town to heaven with us in smoke. He was terrible, relating this to me, this tortured skeleton of a man drawn up together with his face over his knees, upon a miserable bed in that wretched hovel, and lifting his head to look at me with malignant triumph. That's what I told him, I knew what to say, he began again, feebly at first, but working himself up with incredible speed into a fiery utterance of his scorn. We aren't going into the forest to wander like a string of living skeletons dropping one after another for ants to go to work upon us before we are fairly dead. Oh, no. You don't deserve a better fate, he said. And what do you deserve? I shouted at him. You that I find skulking here with your mouth full of your responsibility, of innocent lives, of your infernal duty. What do you know more of me than I know of you? I came here for food, do you hear? Food to fill our bellies. And what did you come for? What did you ask for when you came here? We don't ask you for anything but to give us a fight or a clear road to go back once we came. I would fight with you now, says he, pulling at his little mustache. And I would let you shoot me and welcome, I said. This is as good a jumping off place for me as another. I am sick of my infernal luck. But it would be too easy. There are my men in the same boat. And, by God, I am not the sort to jump out of trouble and leave them in the damned lurch, I said. 
He stood thinking for a while, and then wanted to know what I had done. Out there, he says, tossing his head downstream, to be hazed about so. Have we met to tell each other the story of our lives? I asked him. Suppose you begin. No? Well, I am sure I don't want to hear. Keep it to yourself. I know it is no better than mine. I've lived, and so did you. Though you talk as if you were one of those people that should have wings so as to go about without touching the dirty earth. Well, it is dirty. I haven't got any wings. I'm here because I was afraid once in my life. Want to know what of? Of a prison. That scares me, and you may know it, if it's any good to you. I won't ask you what scared you into this infernal hole, where you seem to have found pretty pickings. That's your luck, and this is mine. The privilege to beg for the favor of being shot quickly, or else kicked out to go free and starve in my own way. His debilitated body shook with an exultation so vehement, so assured, and so malicious that it seemed to have driven off the death waiting for him in that hut. The corpse of his mad self-love uprose from rags and destitution, as from the dark horrors of a tomb. It is impossible to say how much he lied to Jim then, how much he lied to me now, and to himself, always. Vanity plays lurid tricks with our memory, and the truth of every passion wants some pretense to make it live. Standing at the gate of the other world in the guise of a beggar, he had slapped this world's face, he had spat on it, he had thrown upon it an immensity of scorn and revolt at the bottom of his misdeeds. He had overcome them all. Men, women, savages, traitors, ruffians, missionaries. And Jim, that beefy-faced beggar. I did not begrudge him this triumph in articula mortis, this almost posthumous illusion of having trampled all the earth under his feet. While he was boasting to me, in his sordid and repulsive agony, I couldn't help thinking of the chuckling talk relating to the time of his greatest splendor, when, during a year or more, Gentleman Brown's ship was to be seen for many days on end, hovering off an islet befringed with green upon azure, with the dark dot of the mission house on a white beach, while Gentleman Brown, ashore, was casting his spells over a romantic girl for whom Melanesia had been too much, and giving hopes of a remarkable conversion to her husband. The poor man, some time or other, had been heard to express the intention of winning Captain Brown to a better way of life. Bag Gentleman Brown for glory, as a leery-eyed loafer expressed it once, just to let them see up what a Western Pacific trading skipper looks like. And this was the man, too, who had run off with a dying woman, and had shed tears over her body, carried on like a big baby, his then-mate was never tired of telling. And where the fun came in, may I be kicked to death by diseased Kanakis if I know. Why, gents, she was too far gone when he brought her aboard to know him. She just lay there on her back in his bunk, staring at the beam with awful shining eyes. And then she died. Damn bad sort of fever, I guess. I remembered all these stories. While wiping his matted lump of a beard with a livid hand, he was telling me from his noisome couch how he got round, got in, got home, on that confounded, immaculate, don't-you-touch-me sort of fellow. He admitted that he couldn't be scared, but there was a way, as broad as a turnpike, to get in and shake his two-penny soul around and inside out and upside down, by God. Chapter 42 I don't think he could do more than perhaps look upon that straight path. He seemed to have been puzzled by what he saw, for he interrupted himself in his narrative more than once to exclaim, He nearly slipped from me there. I could not make him out. Who was he? And after glaring at me wildly, he would go on, jubilating and sneering. 
To me, the conversation of these two across the creek appears now as the deadliest kind of duel on which fate looked on, with her cold-eyed knowledge of the end. No, he didn't turn Jim's soul inside out, but I am much mistaken if the spirit so utterly out of his reach had not been made to taste to the full the bitterness of that contest. These were the emissaries with whom the world he had renounced was pursuing him in his retreat, white men from out there, where he did not think himself good enough to live. This was all that came to him, a menace, a shock, a danger to his work. I suppose it is this sad, half-resentful, half-resigned feeling, piercing through the few words Jim said now and then, that puzzled Brown so much in the reading of his character. Some great men owe most of their greatness to the ability of detecting in those they destine for their tools the exact quality of strength that matters for their work. And Brown, as though he had been really great, had a satanic gift of finding out the best and the weakest spot in his victims. He admitted to me that Jim wasn't the sort that can be got over by truckling, and accordingly he took care to show himself as a man confronting without dismay, ill luck, censure, and disaster. The smuggling of a few guns was no great crime, he pointed out. As to coming to Patizan, who had the right to say he hadn't come to beg? The infernal people here let loose at him from both banks without staying to ask questions. He made the point brazenly, for, in truth, Dainwaris's energetic action had prevented the greatest calamities. Because Brown told me distinctly that, perceiving the size of the place, he had resolved instantly in his mind that as soon as he had gained a footing, he would set fire right and left, and begin by shooting down everything living in sight, in order to cow and terrify the population. The disproportion of forces was so great that this was the only way giving him the slightest chance of attaining his ends. He argued in a fit of coughing. But he didn't tell Jim this. As to the hardships and starvation they had gone through, these had been very real. It was enough to look at his band. He made, at the sound of a shrill whistle, all his men appear standing in a row on the logs in full view, so that Jim could see them. For the killing of the man, it had been done. Well, it had. But was not this war, bloody war, in a corner? And the fellow had been killed cleanly, shot through the chest, not like that poor devil of his lying now in the creek. They had to listen to him dying for six hours, with his entrails torn with slugs. At any rate, this was a life for a life, and all this was said with the weariness, with the recklessness of a man spurred on and on by ill luck, till he cares not where he runs. When he asked Jim, with a sort of brusque, despairing frankness, whether he himself, straight now, didn't understand that when it came to saving one's life in the dark, one didn't care who else went, three, thirty, three hundred people, as if it was a demon had been whispering advice in his ear. I made him wince, boasted Brown to me. He very soon let off coming the righteous over me. He just stood there with nothing to say, and looking as black as thunder, not at me, on the ground. He asked Jim whether he had nothing fishy in his life to remember, that he was so damnedly hard upon a man trying to get out of a deadly hole by the first mean that came to hand, and so on, and so on. And there ran through the rough talk a vein of subtle reference to their common blood, an assumption of common experience, a sickening suggestion of common guilt, of secret knowledge that was like a bond of their minds and of their hearts. At last, Brown threw himself down full length, and watched Jim out of the corners of his eyes. Jim on his side of the creek stood thinking and switching his leg. The houses in view were silent, as if a pestilence had swept them clean of every breath of life. 
but many invisible eyes were turned, from within, upon the two men with the creek between them, a stranded white boat and the body of the third man half sunk in the mud. On the river canoes were moving again, for Patizan was recovering its belief in the stability of earthly institutions since the return of the White Lord. The right bank, the platforms of the houses, the rafts moored along the shores, even the roofs of bathing huts, were covered with people that, far away out of earshot and almost out of sight, were straining their eyes towards the knoll beyond the Rajah's stockade. Within the wide, irregular ring of forests, broken in two places by the sheen of the river, there was a silence. "'Will you promise to leave the coast?' Jim asked. Brown lifted and let fall. Brown lifted and let fall his hand, giving everything up as it were, accepting the inevitable. "'And surrender your arms?' Jim went on. Brown sat up and glared across. "'Surrender our arms! Not till you come to take them out of our stiff hands. You think I am gone crazy with funk? Oh, no!' That and the rags I stand in is all I have got in the world, besides a few more breech-loaders on board, and I expect to sell the lot in Madagascar if I ever get so far, begging my way from ship to ship. Jim said nothing to this. At last, throwing away the switch he held in his hand, he said, as if speaking to himself, I don't know whether I have the power. You don't know, and you wanted me just now to give up my arms. That's good, too, cried Brown. Suppose they say one thing to you, and do the other thing to me. He calmed down markedly. I dare say you have the power, or what's the meaning of all this talk? He continued. What did you come down here for, to pass the time of day? Very well, said Jim, lifting his head suddenly after a long silence. You shall have a clear road, or else a clear fight. He turned on his heel and walked away. Brown got up at once but he did not go up the hill till he had seen Jim disappear between the first houses. He never set his eyes on him again. On his way back he met Cornelius, slouching down with his head between his shoulders. He stopped before Brown. "'Why didn't you kill him?' he demanded in a sour, discontented voice. "'Because I could do better than that,' Brown said with an amused smile. "'Never, never!' protested Cornelius with energy. "'Couldn't. I have lived here for many years.' Brown looked up at him curiously. There were many sides to the life of that place in arms against him, things he would never find out. Cornelius slunk past dejectedly in the direction of the river. He was now leaving his new friends. He accepted the disappointing course of events with a sulky obstinacy which seemed to draw more together his little yellow old face, and as he went down he glanced askance here and there, never giving up his fixed idea. Henceforth, events moved fast without a check, flowing from the very hearts of men like a stream from a dark source, and we see Jim amongst them, mostly through Tamatam's eyes. The girl's eyes had watched him too, but her life is too much entwined with his. There is her passion, her wonder, her anger, and above all, her fear and her unforgiving love. Of the faithful servant, uncomprehending as the rest of them, it is the fidelity alone that comes into play a fidelity and a belief in his lord, so strong that even amazement is subdued to a sort of saddened acceptance of a mysterious failure. He has his eyes only for one figure, and through all the mazes of bewilderment he preserves his air of guardianship, of obedience, of care. His master came back from his talk with the white men, walking slowly towards the stockade in the street. Everybody was rejoiced to see him return, 
for while he was away, every man had been afraid not only of him being killed, but also of what would come after. Jim went into one of the houses, where old Dorman had retired, and remained alone for a long time with the head of the Budges settlers. No doubt he discussed the course to follow with him then, but no man was present at the conversation. Only Tamatam, keeping as close to the door as he could, heard his master say, Yes, I shall let all the people know that such is my wish, but I spoke to you, O Dorimin, before all the others, and alone, for you know my heart as well as I know yours and its greatest desire, and you know well also that I have no thought but for the people's good. Then his master, lifting the sheeting in the doorway, went out, and he, Tamatam, had a glimpse of old Dorimin within, sitting in the chair with his hands on his knees and looking between his feet. Afterwards he followed his master to the fort, where all the principal Budges and Patisan inhabitants had been summoned for a talk. Tamatam himself hoped there would be some fighting. "'What was it but the taking of another hill?' he exclaimed regretfully. However, in the town many hoped that the rapacious strangers would be induced, by the sight of so many brave men making ready to fight, to go away. It would be a good thing if they went away." Since Jim's arrival had been made known before daylight by the gun fired from the fort and the beating of the big drum there, the fear that had hung over Patizan had broken and subsided like a wave on a rock, leaving the seething foam of excitement, curiosity, and endless speculation. Half of the population had been ousted out of their homes for purposes of defense, and were living in the street on the left side of the river, crowding round the fort, and in momentary expectation of seeing their abandoned dwellings on the threatened bank burst into flames. The general anxiety was to see the matter settled quickly. Food, through Jules' care, had been served out to the refugees. Nobody knew what their white man would do. Some remarked that it was worse than in Sharif Ali's war. Then many people did not care. Now everybody had something to lose. The movements of canoes passing to and fro between the two parts of the town were watched with interest. A couple of Budges war boats lay anchored in the middle of the stream to protect the river, and a thread of smoke stood at the bow of each. The men in them were cooking their midday rice when Jim, after his interviews with Brown and Dorman, crossed the river and entered by the water gate of his fort. The people inside crowded round him, so that he could hardly make his way to the house. They had not seen him before, because on his arrival during the night he had only exchanged a few words with the girl, who had come down to the landing stage for the purpose, and had then gone on at once to join the chiefs and the fighting men on the other bank. People shouted greetings after him. One old woman raised a laugh by pushing her way to the front madly, and enjoining him in a scolding voice to see to it that her two sons, who were with Dorman, did not come to harm at the hands of the robbers. Several of the bystanders tried to pull her away, but she struggled and cried, "'Let me go! What is this, O Muslims?' This laughter is unseemly. Are they not cruel, bloodthirsty robbers bent on killing? Let her be, said Jim, and as the silence fell suddenly, he said slowly, Everybody shall be safe. He entered the house before the great sigh, and the loud murmurs of satisfaction had died out. There's no doubt his mind was made up that Brown should have his way clear back to the sea. His fate, revolted, was forcing his hand. He had for the first time to affirm his will in the face of outspoken opposition. There was much talk, and at first my master was silent, Tamatam said. Darkness came, and then I lit the candles on the long table. The chiefs sat on each side, and the lady remained by my master's right hand. 
When he began to speak, the unaccustomed difficulty seemed only to fix his resolve more immovably. The white men were now waiting for his answer on the hill. Their chief had spoken to him in the language of his own people, making clear many things difficult to explain in any other speech. They were erring men whom suffering had made blind to right and wrong. It is true that lives had been lost already, but why lose more? He declared to his hearers, the assembled heads of the people, that their welfare was his welfare, their losses his losses, their mourning his mourning. He looked round at the grave listening faces and told them to remember that they had fought and worked side by side. They knew his courage, here a murmur interrupted him, and that he had never deceived them. For many years they had dwelt together. He loved the land and the people living in it with a very great love. He was ready to answer with his life for any harm that should come to them if the white men with beards were allowed to retire. They were evildoers, but their destiny had been evil too. Had he ever advised them ill? Had his words ever brought suffering to the people? He asked. He believed that it would be best to let these whites and their followers go with their lives. It would be a small gift. I, whom you have tried and found always true, ask you to let them go. He turned to Dorman. The old Nakoda made no movement. Then, said Jim, call in Danewaris, your son, my friend, for in this business I shall not lead. Chapter 43 Tamatam behind his chair was thunderstruck. The declaration produced an immense sensation. Let them go because this is best in my knowledge which has never deceived you, Jim insisted. There was a silence. In the darkness of the courtyard could be heard the subdued whispering, shuffling noise of many people. Dorman raised his heavy head and said that there was no more reading of hearts than touching the sky with the hand, but he consented. The others gave their opinion in turn. It is best. Let them go. And so on. But most of them simply said that they believed to and Jim. In this simple form of assent to his will lies the whole gist of the situation, their creed, his truth, and the testimony to that faithfulness which made him in his own eyes the equal to the impeccable men who never fall out of the ranks. Stein's words, romantic, romantic, seemed to ring over those distances that will never give him up now to a world indifferent to his failings and his virtues, and to that ardent and clinging affection that refuses him the dole of tears and the bewilderment of a great grief and of eternal separation. From the moment the sheer truthfulness of his last three years of life carries the day against the ignorance, the fear, and the anger of men, he appears no longer to me as I saw him last, a white speck catching all the dim light left upon a somber coast and the darkened sea, but greater and more pitiful in the loneliness of his soul, that remains even for her who loved him best a cruel and insoluble mystery. It is evident that he did not mistrust Brown. There is no reason to doubt the story, whose truth seemed warranted by the rough frankness, by a sort of virile sincerity in accepting the morality and the consequences of his acts. But Jim did not know the almost inconceivable egotism of the man which made him, when resisted and foiled in his will, and with the indignant and revengeful rage of a thwarted autocrat. But if Jim did not mistrust Brown, he was evidently anxious that some misunderstanding should not occur, ending perhaps in collision and bloodshed. It was for this reason that directly the Malay chiefs had gone, he asked Jewel to get him something to eat, as he was going out of the fort to take command in the town. 
On her remonstrating against this on the score of his fatigue, he said that something might happen for which he would never forgive himself. I am responsible for every life in the land, he said. He was moody at first. She served him with her own hands, taking the plates and dishes of the dinner service presented him by Stein from Tamatam. He brightened up after a while, told her she would be again in command of the fort for another night. There's no sleep for us, old girl, he said, while our people are in danger. Later on, he said jokingly that she was the best of them all. If you and Dane Warris had done what you wanted, not one of those poor devils would be alive today. Are they very bad? she asked, leaning over his chair. Men act badly sometimes without being much worse than others, he said after some hesitation. Tamatam followed his master to the landing stage outside the fort. The night was clear but without a moon, and the middle of the river was dark, while the water under each bank reflected the light of many fires, as on a night of Ramadan, Tamatam said. War boats drifted silently in the dark lane, or, anchored, floated motionless with a loud ripple. That night there was much paddling in a canoe, and walking at his master's heels for Tamatam, up and down the street they tramped, where the fires were burning, inland on the outskirts of the town where small parties of men kept guard in the fields. Tu and Jim gave his orders and was obeyed. Last of all they went to the Raja's stockade, which a detachment of Jim's people manned on that night. The old Raja had fled early in the morning with most of his women to a small house he had near a jungle village on a tributary stream. Kasim, left behind, had attended the council with his air of diligent activity to explain away the diplomacy of the day before. He was considerably cold-shouldered, but managed to preserve his smiling, quiet alertness, and professed himself highly delighted when Jim told him sternly that he proposed to occupy the stockade on that night with his own men. After the council broke up, he was heard outside, accosting this and that deputing chief, and speaking in a loud, gratified tone of the Raja's property being protected in the Raja's absence. About ten or so Jim's men marched in. The stockade commanded the mouth of the creek, and Jim meant to remain there till Brown had passed below. A small fire was lit on the flat, grassy point outside the wall of stakes, and Tamatam placed a little folding stool for his master. Jim told him to try and sleep. Tamatam got a mat and lay down a little way off, but he could not sleep, though he knew he had to go on an important journey before the night was out. His master walked to and fro before the fire with bowed head and with his hands behind his back. His face was sad. Whenever his master approached him, Tamatam pretended to sleep, not wishing his master to know he had been watched. At last his master stood still, looking down on him as he lay, and said softly, It is time. Tamatam arose directly and made his preparations. His mission was to go down the river, preceding Brown's boat by an hour or more, to tell Danewaris finally and formally that the whites were to be allowed to pass out unmolested. Jim would not trust anybody else with that service. Before starting, Tamatam, more as a matter of form, since his position about Jim made him perfectly known, asked for a token. Because, Tuan, he said, the message is important, and these are thy very words I carry. His master first put his hand into one pocket, then into another, and finally took off his forefinger Stein silver ring, which he habitually wore, and gave it to Tam Etam. When Tam Etam left on his mission, Brown's camp on the knoll was dark but for a single small glow shining through the branches of one of the trees the white men had cut down. 
Early in the evening, Brown had received from Jim a folded piece of paper on which was written, You get the clear road. Start as soon as your boat floats on the morning tide. Let your men be careful. The bushes on both sides of the creek and the stockade at the mouth are full of well-armed men. You would have no chance, but I don't believe you want bloodshed. Brown read it, tore the paper into small pieces, and, turning to Cornelius, who had brought it, said jeeringly, "'Good-bye, my excellent friend.' Cornelius had been in the fort and had been sneaking around Jim's house during the afternoon. Jim chose him to carry the note because he could speak English, was known to Brown, and was not likely to be shot by some nervous mistake of one of the men as a Malay, approaching in the dusk, perhaps might have been. Cornelius didn't go away after delivering the paper. Brown was sitting up over a tiny fire. All the others were lying down. "'I could tell you something you would like to know,' Cornelius mumbled crossly. Brown paid no attention. "'You did not kill him,' went on the other. "'And what do you get for it? You might have had money from the Raja, besides the loot of all the budges' houses, and now you get nothing.' "'You had better clear out from here,' growled Brown, without even looking at him. But Cornelius let himself drop by his side and began to whisper very fast, touching his elbow from time to time. What he had to say made Brown sit up at first, with a curse. He had simply informed him of Dane Warris's armed party down the river. At first Brown saw himself completely sold and betrayed, but a moment's reflection convinced him that there could be no treachery intended. He said nothing, and after a while Cornelius remarked, in a tone of complete indifference, that there was another way out of the river, which he knew very well. "'A good thing to know, too,' said Brown, pricking up his ears. And Cornelius began to talk of what went on in town, and repeated all that had been said in council, gossiping in an even undertone at Brown's ear, as you talk amongst sleeping men you do not wish to wake. "'He thinks he has made me harmless, does he?' mumbled Brown, very low. "'Yes, he is a fool, a little child.' He came here and robbed me, droned on Cornelius, and he made all the people believe him. But if something happened that they did not believe him any more, where would he be? And the Budgis Dane who is waiting for you down the river there, Captain, is the very man who chased you up here when you first came. Brown observed nonchalantly that it would be just as well to avoid him, and with the same detached, musing air, Cornelius declared himself acquainted with a backwater broad enough to take Brown's boat past Warris's camp. "'You will have to be quiet,' he said as an afterthought, "'for in one place we pass close behind his camp, very close. They are camped ashore, with their boats hauled up.' "'Oh, we know how to be quiet as mice, never fear,' said Brown. Cornelius stipulated that in case he were to pilot Brown out, his canoe should be towed. I'll have to get back quick, he explained. It was two hours before the dawn when word was passed to the stockade from outlying watchers that the white robbers were coming down to their boat. In a very short time, every armed man from one end of Patisan to the other was on the alert, yet the banks of the river remained so silent that but for the fires burning, with sudden blurred flares, the town might have been asleep as if in peacetime. A heavy mist lay very low on the water, making a sort of elusive gray light that showed nothing. When Brown's long boat glided out of the creek into the river, Jim was standing on the low point of land before the Rajah's stockade, on the very spot where, for the first time, he put his foot on Patizan shore. A shadow loomed up, moving in the grayness, solitary, very bulky, and yet constantly eluding the eye. A murmur of low talking came out of it. Brown at the tiller heard Jim speak calmly. 
a clear road. You had better trust to the current while the fog lasts, but this will lift presently. Yes, presently we shall see clear, replied Brown. The thirty or forty men standing with muskets at ready outside the stockade held their breath. The budget's owner of the prow, whom I saw on Stein's veranda, and who was amongst them, told me that the boat, shaving the low point close, seemed for a moment to grow big and hang over it like a mountain. "'If you think it worth your while to wait a day outside,' called out Jim, "'I'll try to send you down something, a bullock, some yams, what I can.' The shadow went on moving. "'Yes, do,' said a voice, blank and muffled out of the fog. Not one of the many attentive listeners understood what the words meant, and then Brown and his men in their boat floated away, fading spectrally without the slightest sound. Thus Brown, invisible in the mist, goes out of Patisan elbow to elbow with Cornelius in the stern sheets of the long boat. Perhaps you shall get a small bullock, said Cornelius. Oh yes, bullock, yam. You'll get it if he said so. He always speaks the truth. He stole everything I had. I suppose you like a small bullock better than the loot of many houses. I would advise you to hold your tongue, or somebody here may fling you overboard into the stamped fog, said Brown. The boat seemed to be standing still. Nothing could be seen, not even the river alongside. Only the water dust flew and trickled, condensed down their beards and faces. It was weird, Brown told me. Every individual man of them felt as though he were adrift alone in a boat, haunted by an almost imperceptible suspicion of sighing, muttering ghosts. "'Throw me out, would you? But I would know where I was,' mumbled Cornelius surlily. "'I've lived many years here.' "'Not long enough to see through a fog like this,' Brown said, lolling back with his arm swinging to and fro on the useless tiller. "'Yes, long enough for that,' snarled Cornelius. "'That's very useful,' commented Brown. "'Am I to believe you could find that back way you spoke of blindfold like this?' Cornelius grunted. "'Are you too tired to row?' he asked after a silence. "'No, by God!' shouted Brown suddenly. "'Out with your oars there!' There was a great knocking in the fog, which after a while settled into a regular grind of invisible sweeps against invisible thole-pins. Otherwise nothing was changed, and but for the slight splash of a dipped blade, it was like rowing a balloon car in a cloud, said Brown. Thereafter, Cornelius did not open his lips except to ask querulously for somebody to bail out his canoe, which was towing behind the longboat. Gradually the fog whitened and became luminous ahead. To the left, Brown saw a darkness as though he had been looking at the back of the departing night. All at once a big bough covered with leaves appeared above his head, and ends of twigs, dripping and still, curved slenderly close alongside. Cornelius, without a word, took the tiller from his hand. We'll return soon to the final segment of Lord Jim, but first, join Lauren Gargani and me for a conversation about this reading. Hi, Anne. How are you today? I'm doing great, Lauren. How are you? I am wonderful. I'm excited to be sort of taking over hosting responsibilities this time around. <laughs> yeah, it's a little nice to be on the receiving end this time. So yeah, this is our 14th and final installment of Lord Jim. It is. Yeah, we have kind of flown through this book over the course of this summer of 2020. Which has in some ways gone faster than I expected it to. Time, time is weird right now. Time. 
time is very weird right now. It feels like the days and the weeks and the installments have all just kind of collapsed in on each other. And right. days are long, but weeks are short, if that makes sense. Right. Um, but, you know, this has been a lovely thread running through the summer. And it's been really exciting to me to be able to, you know, follow along and participate and do a little research and talk about the book. Uh, but you have had a whole, like, experience with this. Um, so, so that is listeners. That's the plan for today is just do a little bit of a Q&A with Anne about her experience recording this podcast. Yeah, well, and to admit a little something to our listeners, you might think that this was a highly planned out adventure and that, um, you know, we had chosen the book very carefully and done a lot of preparation work. And the reality is that my experience has probably been pretty similar to the listener's experience. Lord Jim is a book I wanted to read, so I decided to read it out loud. Um, and I'll admit too that when we're recording this, I haven't quite finished the book yet because like any student or faculty member or person, sometimes, you know, uh, things come a little out of order. So it's just been a huge amount of fun for me because I'm just reading literature that I wanted to read, um, and sharing it with people around the country and the world. And it's been fantastic. And just like the newspaper readers we talked about last week, you know, you felt like maybe I should have read Lord Jim at some point. So you made it possible in installments. Um, well, and I have to say, being a librarian at a maritime institution and not having read Lord Jim, um, yeah, it was right up there at the top of my list. And yet somehow it hadn't happened yet. And I've read a little Conrad before and I've read a biography of Conrad, which was wonderful. I think that was um, the Dawn Watch um, that really got me interested and talked some about some of the different stories. So I was convinced that I wanted to, I just hadn't gotten there quite yet. Well, I am so glad that you have gotten there at this point. And so I wanted to go back to the beginning um, first and just ask, you know, where did the idea come from? What made you decide to do a podcast, A, and B, to, you know, to choose Lord Jim specifically out of, you know, a lot of options? Yeah, and I, I wish I had a really good, you know, origination story for this whole project, but a lot of it was just born out of what's happening in the world right now and what that means for our work and for our students and our campus, because, um, you know, at the end of March, we suddenly found ourselves all at home and trying to support our students virtually and remotely and kind of forced our way through the last five weeks of the semester that were not at all what we thought that was going to look like when the semester started in January. So I got through that. And then, you know, so much of our summer work when students are mostly not on campus is physical work in the library and managing our collections physically and managing the facility and all of that work just wasn't as much of an option this summer um, and i was really focused on working on tasks that i could do remotely because that is another big part of my job um, i never get to all of it so i was focusing on that part um, 
And I wanted to do something that would help connect our campus and engage our community members remotely. Um, you know, after what might have been kind of a disappointing end to the semester, just because of what we kind of had to do, you know, what can we share? What can we engage with? Um, and I think that literature is a great way to do that. And it's something that we surprisingly maybe to some, we don't get to engage with it as much in our library as you might think. And, you know, for those of you who aren't librarians, you might not realize the extent to which a lot of librarians don't work with novels um, and it's not about fiction so much. Um, and for me, you know, it's a lot about teaching information literacy and searching skills and academic skills and um, you know, dealing with databases and websites and news sources. Um, and this is a side that I wanted to play with a little bit and maybe bring to our students who do enjoy literature and want a little bit more. Um, this book, I'll say, that was the second part of your question. Um, Lord Jim, I chose, as I mentioned, because in part I wanted to read it. So thank you for indulging me. Um, we'll say that that was a great opportunity to share the experience. Um, I was also looking for something that was maritime because we're a maritime academy and I wanted to make sure it was on brand that way um, and relevant to our students and our faculty um, and our community members. Um, I wanted something that would be interesting, that would engage with ethics. Um, I think our campus, as well as many other colleges, are really interested in thinking about ethics and teaching ethics and, you know, uh, logical thinking and um, critical thinking skills. And from what I had read about Lord Jim, I thought this engages that. The question remains throughout the text about Jim's decision to abandon a ship as an officer that he believed to be sinking without taking care of the passengers. And as you know, that is pretty taboo. And he has reasoning for it. He wasn't, I don't think, trying to be a bad officer. He was looking at the reality in front of him, not enough boats, overpacked vessel, the potential for um, hysteria and violence and a much worse death. So, you know, whether he was legitimately choosing between an easy death and a hard death or not, um, that's his interpretation, or at least Marlowe's interpretation of his interpretation. And I just, I think that's so interesting and important and difficult. Um, you know, it, it is not what he was supposed to do. Um, and it's something that I think is hard to talk about. And so it's a great reason to have literature and fiction that talks about it because it, it gives you that opportunity. It's yeah. also in the public domain, which helps for our purposes. That is great. And, you know, I think that we've, we've talked, um, about, you know, this being a good time for comfort food reading, and there's a lot of fun, fluffy, wonderful reading to be had, but it is okay to engage with those deeper things. And I love that you've brought us something that is, it's not a simple 
novel and there are so many layers and uh, I think it's wonderful that you were willing to dive into something that complex. So is this your first podcast experience? Um, in one sense, yes. In another sense, I don't know if there's a second, so I don't know if this counts as first, if it's only at this point. Um, but yeah, I've never podcasted before. Um, kind of as we all ended up at home, I was certainly making jokes about all of the podcasts that were about to be born, um, many of which maybe shouldn't be. Um, and then all of a sudden I found myself with my very own and part of that group. So I, I need to watch how I judge. <laughs> I certainly should not be throwing first stones there. Well, I, I listen to a fair number of podcasts now, certainly more now than I did in March. <laughs> and, um, you know, I have to say, I would not have guessed that, you know, based on the production that you've put together, I would not have guessed that you've never done this before, so. Well, that is very kind. I have to say, if you want to do something, the best thing to do is consume things like it. And I listen to a lot of podcasts and I have done so for the last five years or so um, and really enjoyed it. Um, and I'll give a shout out to one of the podcasts that I enjoy is uh, Planet Money by NPR. They recently did an episode um, marking a, a milestone, it might have been a thousand episodes, where they kind of broke down their formula for an episode. And I, I found episodes like that really fascinating and helpful. And it's actually just a great way to kind of figure out the magic behind the podcast and how you put that together. Um, not that that is in any way a substitute for some more formal learning, but I think it served me pretty well as a, an amateur podcaster. Awesome. So anything that you learned about the technical aspects or just about, about the process of doing this um, along the way? I've definitely learned the importance of sound and sound quality. Um, to pull down the curtain a little bit more for our listeners, I am doing this in the spare bedroom of my apartment in Maine. Um, it is next to a busy road. It has two not very well insulated windows. Um, and all of my equipment is things that we happened to have in the office that I grabbed and brought home on my last day on campus in March. Um, just thinking maybe this would be useful for something while we're operating remotely. Um, so it's just my work laptop and a snowball microphone that we got pretty inexpensively for a project in the past. Um, you have probably noticed the road sounds in the background. Um, I haven't been entirely happy with um, some extraneous bass sounds that I can't track down. Um, so, you know, the, I use a, um, a kind of a lecture capture tool um, just on my computer that I already had for making some instructional videos. And I think that's worked okay, pretty well, um, but it has given me a very fine appreciation for people who do this professionally and where you don't hear all of those strange things. Uh, I'd love to step up my game for the next one. 
we'll keep that in mind. So I think that we just heard Anne commit to a next podcast is, is what I just heard. <laughs> you know, I don't even know what book that would be. So I'm going to need some help and crowdsourced ideas for public domain, maritime themed, interesting novels that I want to read out loud. I mean, it might be time to enlist some colleagues and do more of a performance aspect and, you know, parts assigned. Not me, but, you know, someone. <laughs> I think you just committed. Oh boy, this is a dangerous game we're playing. I think when you volunteered, you volunteered. Ooh, I, yikes. So um, another question that I have about, more, more specific to the novel, um, had, is it what you expected? Is it you know, what, what have you found here, being that you did go into this not knowing what, how it was going to go? Um, in a way, yes. I had read uh, a fair bit about the novel. Um, again, I can't recommend um, The Dawn Watch more um, for listeners who just want to learn more about Conrad. He had a fascinating life. Um, and that book does some really lovely combining of biographical information with literary analysis of his texts. Um, so I had gotten a little bit that way. Um, so I wasn't surprised by kind of the overall arc of the story or, you know, exactly what happened. Um, I think I did expect more of the shipwreck simply because that is the defining feature of the novel. That's the issue that we're grappling with for the rest of the novel, and it happens very early and it's very brief compared to the rest of it. You know, I was looking at the page count as we left the vessel and, you know, the vast majority of the book was still left to read. And so there's certainly some wondering what, what's left to happen. Um, and, you know, it really, it's not, a particularly plot-driven novel. This is a little character development, a little lack of development at times, which is frustrating, um, but it's just, it's so contemplative. And I think it suits the maritime context so well that way, because we just keep churning and traveling and there's not all that many posts along the way um, as we're thinking about these issues and thinking about the past and thinking about Marlowe and thinking about Jim. Um, I've really enjoyed that. I really like uh, diving into those internal worlds. And um, not that I don't love a plot-driven novel, let me be clear, those are often very fun. Um, and I read a lot of them. But I think Conrad's linguistic sense is really well suited to this novel. Um, certainly reading it out loud, I was really appreciating a lot of his vocabulary and cadence, which is just incredible for somebody who was not a native English speaker and learned right. as an adult. Right. Um, sometimes kind of questioning some of his choice of words. There have been times that people have been called odious and I can't figure out what's odious about them. I don't know if that's an authorial mistake or if I don't know what those words mean as well as I could, or if it's changed over time. Um, so yeah, yeah, it's a little different than I expected, but also kind of write what I wanted. So 
I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here. And, you know, I feel like you've given us lots and lots of arguments for reading this novel along the way. You've mm -hmm. spent a lot of time thinking about that. So if you had to give us, you know, your one sentence, like why should someone read Lord Jim? What would your pitch, what's your elevator pitch for Lord Jim? I won't hold you to one sentence. Oh, let's see. Um, I really did put in on the spot. This was not rehearsed. <laughs> As you can tell, oh. hopefully it wasn't rehearsed. You um, can get this if you want. <laughs> I would say that it is a beautiful and challenging text that makes you look inward and really consider some issues that were certainly relevant in the maritime environment, but are also relevant to all of us. Um, and I think that it's, it's fun to read, it's enjoyable, it's beautifully written, um, and it's also challenging. And I think that's a great combination if that's what you're looking for. And certainly, you know, this is apart from my one sentence, but there's so much in myself that I see related to Jim and not in a great way. You know, I think about my own reactions in hard situations and the amount of time that I spend thinking about how great I do in that situation and how I've let myself down. Absolutely. And, you yeah. know, I, I think that is what's great about literature generally. It's great about this book that it makes you face some things through fiction and through a situation that I've never been in and I probably will never be in because I'm not going to see as part of my work and I'm not an officer. Mm -hmm. um, but this is the human experience. Yeah. And this is what we deal with. Right. We, you know, we all have decisions to make and we all find ourselves in circumstances that we, you know, just do not go the way we expected. So I think that's, yeah, there's a lot for us to just connect with as humans here from the sound of it. And I feel yeah. like that's a wonderful argument for reading something. Well, and, you know, looking at Marlowe giving Jim chance after chance and Jim continuing to think that he's continuing to do great. And, you know, how would I react as Marlowe to Jim? Would I keep enabling him? Would I have faith in his ability to grow as a person? Can somebody grow if they're not willing to take that hard look at themselves? Can they grow when they're this defensive about it? Mm -hmm. yeah. if, does he have those thoughts underneath and he's just hiding them? Is he actually thinking that he's that good? You know, it's, there's so much there and it's just been a joy to read it. Well, I have to say, it's been a joy to be a part of this process, um, you know, on the fringes of what you're doing. Um, I, I've loved hearing about it. Um, do you have any final thoughts that you want to share with us? I want to thank you for listening. Um, this has been fun for me. It would be fun just sitting here by myself doing it, but it is entirely different knowing that we have listeners who are enjoying it and getting something out of it. I assume if you've made it to this point, um, I hope this hasn't been a self-flagellation exercise. Um, it's just been great and I'm so appreciative and I hope that 
you know, we'll have a chance to meet again in this liminal space um, in some way, maybe with another text. Um, and certainly, you know, reach out, let us know what you thought. Um, I'd love to know. And thank you. And now we'll return to the final segment of Lord Jim. Chapter 44 I don't think they spoke together again. The boat entered a narrow by-channel where it was pushed by the oar blades set into crumbling banks, and there was a gloom as if enormous black wings had been outspread above the mist that filled its depths to the summits of the trees. The branches overhead showered big drops through the gloomy fog. At a mutter from Cornelius, Brown ordered his men to load. "'I'll give you a chance to get even with them before we're done, you dismal cripples, you,' he said to his gang. "'Mind you don't throw it away, you hounds.' Low growls answered that speech. Cornelius showed much fussy concern for the safety of his canoe. Meantime, Tam and Tom had reached the end of his journey. The fog had delayed him a little, but he had paddled steadily, keeping in touch with the south bank. By and by, daylight came like a glow in a ground-glass globe. The shores made on each side of the river a dark smudge, in which one could detect hints of columnar forms and shadows of twisted branches high up. The mist was still thick on the water, but a good watch was being kept, for as Tamatam approached the camp the figures of the two men emerged out of the white vapor, and voices spoke to him boisterously. He answered, and presently a canoe lay alongside, and he exchanged news with the paddlers. All was well, the trouble was over. Then the men in the canoe let go their grip on the side of his dugout, and incontinently fell out of sight. He pursued his way till he heard voices coming to him quietly over the water, and saw, under the now lifting, swirling mist, the glow of many little fires burning on a sandy stretch, backed by lofty, thin timber and bushes. There again a lookout was kept, for he was challenged. He shouted his name as the two last sweeps of his paddle ran his canoe up on the strand. It was a big camp. Men crouched in many little knots under a subdued murmur of early morning talk. Many thin threads of smoke curled slowly on the white mist. Little shelters, elevated above the ground, had been built for the chiefs. Muskets were stacked in small pyramids, and long spears were stuck singly into the sand near the fires. Tamatam, assuming an air of importance, demanded to be led to Dane Waris. He found the friend of his white lord lying on a raised couch made of bamboo and sheltered by a sort of shed of sticks covered with mats. Dainwaris was awake, and a bright fire was burning before his sleeping place, which resembled a rude shrine. The only son of Nakoda Doraman answered his greeting kindly. Tamatam began by handing him the ring which vouched for the truth of the messenger's words. Dainwaris, reclining on his elbow, bade him speak and tell all the news. Beginning with a consecrated formula, the news is good, Tamatam delivered Jim's own words. The white men, deputing with the consent of all the chiefs, were to be allowed to pass down the river. In answer to a question or two, Tamatam then reported the proceedings of the last council. Dane Waris listened attentively to the end, toying with the ring which ultimately he slipped on the forefinger of his right hand. After hearing all he had to say, he dismissed Tamatam to have food and rest. Orders for the return in the afternoon were given immediately. 
Afterwards, Danewaris lay down again, open-eyed, while his personal attendants were preparing his food at the fire, by which Tamatam also sat talking to the men, who lounged up to hear the latest intelligence from the town. The sun was eating up the mist. A good watch was kept upon the reach of the main stream where the boat of the whites was expected to appear every moment. It was then that Brown took his revenge upon the world, which, after twenty years of contemptuous and reckless bullying, refused him the tribute of a common robber's success. It was an act of cold-blooded ferocity, and it consoled him on his deathbed like a memory of an indomitable defiance. Stealthily, he landed his men on the other side of the island opposite to the Budges camp, and led them across. After a short but quite silent scuffle, Cornelius, who had tried to slink away at the moment of landing, resigned himself to show the way where the undergrowth was most sparse. Brown held both his skinny hands together behind his back in the grip of one vast fist, and now and then impelled him forward with a fierce push. Cornelius remained as mute as a fish, abject but faithful to his purpose, whose accomplishment loomed before him dimly. At the edge of the patch of forest, Brown's men spread themselves out in cover and waited. The camp was plain from end to end before their eyes, and no one looked their way. Nobody even dreamed that the white men could have any knowledge of the narrow channel at the back of the island. When he judged the moment come, Brown yelled, Let them have it! And fourteen shots rang out like one. Tamatam told me the surprise was so great that, except for those who fell dead or wounded, not a soul of them moved for quite an appreciable time after the first discharge. Then a man screamed, and after that scream a great yell of amazement and fear went up from all the throats. A blind panic drove these men in a surging, swaying mob to and fro along the shore, like a herd of cattle afraid of water. Some few jumped into the river then, but most of them did so only after the last discharge. Three times Brown's men fired into the ruck, Brown, the only one in view, cursing and yelling, Aim low! Aim low! Tamatam says that, as for him, he understood at the first volley what had happened. Though untouched, he fell down and lay as if dead, but with his eyes open. At the sound of the first shots, Danewaris, reclining on the couch, jumped up and ran out upon the open shore, just in time to receive a bullet in his forehead at the second discharge. Tamatam saw him fling his arms wide open before he fell. Then, he says, a great fear came upon him, not before. The white men retired as they had come, unseen. Thus Brown balanced his account with the evil fortune. Notice that even in this awful outbreak there is a superiority as of a man who carries right, the abstract thing, within the envelope of his common desires. It was not a vulgar and treacherous massacre. It was a lesson, a retribution a demonstration of some obscure and awful attribute of our nature which, I am afraid, is not so very far under the surface as we like to think. Afterwards, the whites depart unseen by Tamatam and seem to vanish from before men's eyes altogether, and the schooner, too, vanishes after the manner of stolen goods. But a story is told of a white longboat picked up a month later in the Indian Ocean by a cargo steamer. Two parched, yellow, glassy-eyed, whispering skeletons in her recognized the authority of a third, who declared that his name was Brown. His schooner, he reported, bound south with a cargo of java sugar, had sprung a bad leak and sank under his feet. He and his companions were the survivors of a crew of six. The two died on board the steamer which rescued them. 
Brown lived to be seen by me, and I can testify that he had played his part to the last. It seems, however, that in going away they had neglected to cast off Cornelius's canoe. Cornelius himself Brown had let go at the beginning of the shooting, with a kick for a parting benediction. Tamatam, after arising from amongst the dead, saw the Nazarene running up and down the shore amongst the corpses and the expiring fires. He uttered little cries. Suddenly he rushed to the water and made frantic efforts to get one of the budgis boats into the water. Afterwards, till he had seen me, related Tamatam, he stood looking at the heavy canoe and scratching his head. What became of him? I asked. Tamatam, staring hard at me, made an expressive gesture with his right arm. Twice I struck, Tuan, he said. When he beheld me approaching, he cast himself violently on the ground and made a great outcry, kicking. He screeched like a frightened hen till he felt the point. Then he was still and lay staring at me while his life went out of his eyes. This done, Tamatam did not tarry. He understood the importance of being the first with the awful news at the fort. There were, of course, many survivors of Danewaris's party, but in the extremity of panic, some had swum across the river, others had bolted into the bush. The fact is, they did not know really who struck that blow. Whether more white robbers were not coming, whether they had not already got hold of the whole land. They imagined themselves to be the victims of a vast treachery, and utterly doomed to destruction. It is said that some small parties did not come in till three days afterwards. However, a few tried to make their way back to Patasan at once and one of the canoes that were patrolling the river that morning was in sight of the camp at the very moment of the attack. It is true that at first the men in her leaped overboard and swam to the opposite bank, but afterwards they returned to their boat and started fearfully upstream. Of these, Tamatam had an hour's advance. Chapter 45 When Tamatam, paddling madly, came into the town reach, the women, thronging the platforms before the houses, were looking out for the return of Dane Waris's little fleet of boats. The town had a festive air. Here and there men, still with spears or guns in their hands, could be seen moving or standing on the shore in groups. Chinamen's shops had been opened early, but the marketplace was empty, and a sentry, still posted at the corner of the fort, made out Tamatam and shouted to those within. The gate was wide open. Tamatam jumped ashore and ran in headlong. The first person he met was the girl coming down from the house. Tamatam disordered, panting, with trembling lips and wild eyes, stood for a time before her as if a sudden spell had been laid on him. Then he broke out very quickly. They have killed Dane Waris and many more. She clapped her hands and her first words were, shut the gates. Most of the fortmen had gone back to their houses, but Tamatam hurried on the few who remained for their turn of duty within. The girl stood in the middle of the courtyard while the others ran about. Dorman, she cried despairingly as Tamatam passed her. Next time he went by, he answered her thought rapidly. Yes, but we have all the powder in Patizan. She caught him by the arm and, pointing at the house, call him out, she whispered, trembling. Tamatam ran up the steps. His master was sleeping. It is I, Tamatam, he cried at the door, with tidings that cannot wait. He saw Jim turn over on the pillow and open his eyes, and he burst out at once. This, Tuan, is a day of evil, an accursed day. His master raised himself on his elbow to listen, just as Dane Waris had done. 
And then Tamatan began his tale, trying to relate the story in order, calling Dainwaris Penglima, and saying, The Penglima then called out to the chief of his own boatmen, Give Tamatam something to eat. When his master put his feet to the ground and looked at him with such a discomposed face that the words remained in his throat. Speak out, said Jim. Is he dead? May you live long, cried Tamatam. It was a most cruel treachery. He ran out at the first shots and fell. His master walked to the window and with his fist struck at the shutter. The room was made light, and then, in a steady voice but speaking fast, he began to give him orders to assemble a fleet of boats for immediate pursuit. Go to this man, to the other, send messengers. And as he talked, he sat down on the bed, stooping to lace his boots hurriedly, and suddenly looked up. Why do you stand here? he asked, very red-faced. Waste no time. Tamatam did not move. Forgive me, Tuan, but—but, he began to stammer. "'What?' cried his master aloud, looking terrible, leaning forward with his hands gripping the edge of the bed. "'It is not safe for thy servant to go out amongst the people,' said Tamatam, after hesitating a moment. Then Jim understood. He had retreated from one world for a small matter of an impulsive jump, and now the other, the work of his own hands, had fallen in ruins upon his head. It was not safe for his servant to go out amongst his own people.' I believe that in that very moment he had decided to defy the disaster in the only way it occurred to him such a disaster could be defied. But all I know is that, without a word, he came out of his room and sat before the long table, at the head of which he was accustomed to regulate the affairs of his world, proclaiming daily the truth that surely lived in his heart. The dark power should not rob him twice of his peace. He sat like a stone figure. Tamatam, deferential, hinted at preparations for defense. The girl he loved came in and spoke to him, but he made a sign with his hand and she was awed by the dumb appeal for silence in it. She went out on the veranda and sat on the threshold, as if to guard him with her body from dangers outside. What thoughts passed through his head? What memories? Who can tell? Everything was gone, and he who had been once faithful to his trust had lost again all men's confidence. It was then, I believe, he tried to write, to somebody, and gave it up. Loneliness was closing on him. People had trusted him with their lives. Only for that, and yet they could never, as he had said, never be made to understand him. Those without did not hear him make a sound. Later, towards the evening, he came to the door and called for Tamatam. Well, he asked. There is much weeping, much anger, too, said Tamatam. Jim looked up at him. You know, he murmured. Yes, Tuan, said Tamatam. Thy servant does know, and the gates are closed. We shall have to fight. Fight? What for? he asked. For our lives. I have no life, he said. Tamatam heard a cry from the girl at the door. Who knows, said Tamatam. By audacity and cunning we may even escape. There is much fear in men's hearts, too. He went out, thinking vaguely of boats and of open sea, leaving Jim and the girl together. I haven't the heart to set down here such glimpses as she had given me of the hour or more she passed in there wrestling with him for the possession of her happiness. Whether he had any hope, what he expected, what he imagined, it is impossible to say. He was inflexible, and with the growing loneliness of his obstinacy his spirit seemed to rise above the ruins of his existence. She cried, Fight! into his ear. 
She could not understand. There was nothing to fight for. He was going to prove his power in another way and conquer the fatal destiny itself. He came out into the courtyard, and behind him, with streaming hair, wild of face, breathless, she staggered out and leaned on the side of the doorway. "'Open the gates,' he ordered. Afterwards, turning to those of his men who were inside, he gave them leave to depart to their homes. "'For how long, Tuin?' asked one of them timidly. "'For all life,' he said in a somber tone. A hush had fallen upon the town after the outburst of wailing and lamentation that had swept over the river like a gust of wind from the opened abode of sorrow. But rumors flew in whispers, filling the hearts with consternation and horrible doubts. The robbers were coming back, bringing many others with them in a great ship, and there would be no refuge in the land for anyone. A sense of utter insecurity as during an earthquake pervaded the minds of men who whispered their suspicions, looking at each other as if in the presence of some awful portent. The sun was sinking towards the forests when Dainwaris's body was brought into Doraman's campong. Four men carried it in, covered decently with a white sheet which the old mother had sent out down to the gate to meet her son on his return. They laid him at Doraman's feet, and the old man sat still for a long time, one hand on each knee, looking down. The fronds of palms swayed gently, and the foliage of fruit trees stirred above his head. Every single man of his people was there, fully armed, when the old Nakoda at last raised his eyes. He moved them slowly over the crowd, as if seeking for a missing face. Again his chin sank on his breast. The whispers of many men mingled with the slight rustling of the leaves. The Malay who had brought him, Tom, and the girl to Samarang was there too. Not so angry as many, he said to me, but struck with a great awe and wonder at the suddenness of men's fate, which hangs over their heads like a cloud charged with thunder. He told me that when Dainwaris's body was uncovered at a sign of Doraman's, he whom they often called the White Lord's friend was disclosed lying unchanged with his eyelids a little open, as if about to wake. Doraman leaned forward a little more, like one looking for something fallen on the ground. His eyes searched the body from its feet to its head, for the wound, maybe. It was in the forehead and small, and there was no word spoken while one of the bystanders, stooping, took off the silver ring from the cold, stiff hand. In silence he held it up before Doraman. A murmur of dismay and horror ran through the crowd at the sight of that familiar token. The old Nakoda stared at it, and suddenly let out a great fierce cry, deep from the chest, a roar of pain and fury, as mighty as the bellow of a wounded bull, bringing great fear into men's hearts by the magnitude of his anger and his sorrow that could be plainly discerned without words. There was a great stillness afterwards, for a space, while the body was being borne aside by four men. They laid it down under a tree, and on the instant, with one long shriek, all the women of the household began to wail together. They mourned with shrill cries. The sun was setting, and in the intervals of screamed lamentations the high sing-song voices of two old men intoning the Quran chanted alone. About this time, Jim, leaning on a gun carriage, looked at the river and turned his back on the house, and the girl in the doorway, panting as if she had run herself to a standstill, was looking at him across the yard. Tamatam stood not far from his master, waiting patiently for what might happen. All at once, Jim, who seemed to be lost in quiet thought, turned to him and said, Time to finish this.
Tuin said Tamatam, advancing with alacrity. He did not know what his master meant, but as soon as Jim made a movement, the girl started too and walked down into the open space. It seems that no one else of the people of the house was in sight. She tottered slightly, and about halfway down called out to Jim, who had apparently resumed his peaceful contemplation of the river. He turned round, setting his back against the gun. "'Will you fight?' she cried. "'There is nothing to fight for,' he said. "'Nothing is lost.' Saying this, he made a step towards her. "'Will you fly?' she cried again. "'There is no escape,' he said, stopping short, and she stood still also, silent, devouring him with her eyes. "'And you shall go,' she said slowly. He bent his head. "'Ah!' she exclaimed, peering at him as it were. "'You are mad or false. Do you remember the night I prayed you to leave me, and you said you could not, that it was impossible?' "'Impossible! Do you remember you said you would never leave me? "'Why? I asked you for no promise. "'You promised unasked, remember?' "'Enough, poor girl,' he said. "'I should not be worth having.' "'Tamatam said that while they were talking "'she would laugh loud and senselessly, "'like one under the visitation of God. "'His master put his hands to his head. "'He was fully dressed as for every day, but without a hat. "'She stopped laughing suddenly.' For the last time, she cried menacingly, will you defend yourself? Nothing can touch me, he said in a last flicker of superb egoism. Tamatam saw her lean forward where she stood, open her arms and run at him swiftly. She flung herself upon his breast and clasped him round the neck. Ah, but I shall hold thee thus, she cried. Thou art mine. She sobbed on his shoulder. The sky over Patisan was blood red, immense, streaming like an open vein. An enormous sun nestled crimson amongst the treetops, and the forest below had a black and forbidding face. Tamatam tells me that on that evening the aspect of the heavens was angry and frightful. I may well believe it, for I know that on that very day a cyclone passed within sixty miles of the coast, though there was hardly more than a languid stir of air in the place. Suddenly, Tamatam saw Jim catch her arms, trying to unclasp her hands. She hung on them with her head fallen back, her hair touched the ground. Come here, his master called, and Tamatam helped to ease her down. It was difficult to separate her fingers. Jim, bending over her, looked earnestly upon her face, and all at once ran to the landing stage. Tamatam followed him, but turning his head, he saw that she had struggled up to her feet. She ran after them a few steps, then fell down heavily on her knees. Tuin, Tuin, called Tamatam, look back. But Jim was already in a canoe, standing up paddle in hand. He did not look back. Tamatam had just time to scramble in after him when the canoe floated clear. The girl was then on her knees, with clasped hands at the water gate. She remained thus for a time, in a supplicating attitude before she sprang up. You are false! she screamed out after Jim. Forgive me, he cried. Never, never, she called back. Tamatam took the paddle from Jim's hands, it being unseemly that he should sit while his lord paddled. When they reached the other shore, his master forbade him to come any farther, but Tamatam did follow him at a distance, walking up the slope to Dorman's campong. It was beginning to grow dark. Torches twinkled here and there. Those they met seemed awestruck, and stood aside hastily to let Jim pass. The wailing of women came from above. 
The courtyard was filled of armed budgets with their followers and of partisan people. I do not know what this gathering really meant. Were these preparations for war or for vengeance or to repulse a threatened invasion? Many days elapsed before the people had ceased to look out, quaking for the return of the white men with long beards and in rags, whose exact relation to their own white man they could never understand. Even for those simple minds, poor Jim remains under a cloud. Doraman, alone, immense and desolate, sat in his armchair with the pair of flintlock pistols on his knees, faced by an armed throng. When Jim appeared, at somebody's exclamation, all the heads turned round together, and then the mass opened right and left, and he walked up a lane of averted glances. Whispers followed him, murmurs, he has worked all the evil, he hath a charm, he heard them. Perhaps... When he came up into the light of torches, the wailing of the women ceased suddenly. Dorman did not lift his head, and Jim stood silent before him for a time. Then he looked to the left, and moved in that direction with measured steps. Dane Warris's mother crouched at the head of the body, and the grey dishevelled hair concealed her face. Jim came up slowly, looked at his dead friend, lifting the sheet, then dropped it without a word. Slowly he walked back. He came! He came, was running from lip to lip, making a murmur to which he moved. He hath taken it upon his own head, a voice said aloud. He heard this and turned to the crowd. Yes, upon my head, a few people recoiled. Jim waited a while before Doraman, and then said gently, I am come in sorrow. He waited again. I am come ready and unarmed, he repeated. The unwieldy old man lowering his big forehead like an ox under a yoke, made an effort to rise, clutching at the flintlock pistols on his knees. From his throat came gurgling, choking, inhuman sounds, and his two attendants helped him from behind. People remarked that the ring which he had dropped on his lap fell and rolled against the foot of the white man, and that poor Jim glanced down at the talisman that had opened for him the door of fame, love, and success, within the walls of forests fringed with white foam, within the coast that under the western sun looks like the very stronghold of the night. Doraman, struggling to keep his feet, made with his two supporters a swaying, tottering group. His little eyes stared with an expression of mad pain, of rage, with a ferocious glitter, which the bystanders noticed. And then, while Jim stood stiffened and with bared head in the light of torches, looking him straight in the face, he clung heavily with his left arm round the neck of a bowed youth, and lifting deliberately with his right, shot his son's friend through the chest. The crowd, which had fallen apart behind Jim as soon as Doraman had raised his hand, rushed tumultuously forward after the shot. They say that the white man sent right and left at all those faces a proud and unflinching glance. Then, with his hand over his lips, he fell forward, dead. And that's the end. He passes away under a cloud, inscrutable at heart, forgotten, unforgiven, and excessively romantic. Not in the wildest days of his boyish visions could he have seen the alluring shape of such an extraordinary success. For it may very well be that in the short moment of his last proud and unflinching glance, he had beheld the face of that opportunity, which, like an eastern bride, had come veiled to his side. But we can see him, 
an obscure conqueror of fame, tearing himself out of the arms of a jealous love at the sign, at the call of his exalted egoism. He goes away from a living woman to celebrate his pitiless wedding with a shadowy ideal of conduct. Is he satisfied, quite, now I wonder? We ought to know. He is one of us. And have I not stood up once, like an evoked ghost, to answer for his eternal constancy? Was I so very wrong after all? Now he is no more. There are days when the reality of his existence comes to me with an immense, with an overwhelming force. And yet, upon my honor, there are moments, too, when he passes from my eyes like a disembodied spirit, astray amongst the passions of this earth, ready to surrender himself faithfully to the claim of his own world of shades. Who knows? He is gone, inscrutable at heart, and the poor girl is leading a sort of soundless, inert life in Stein's house. Stein has aged greatly of late. He feels it himself, and says often that he is preparing to leave all this, preparing to leave, while he waves his hand sadly at his butterflies. Thank you for joining us for this reading of Lord Jim. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider leaving a review to help others find us. This podcast was read and produced by me, Anne Dyer. Article recommendations and graphics by Lauren Gargani. Special thanks to Emily Baer. Music by Chad Crouch. <laughs>